listeners, and welcome to a special edition of the Unions 21 podcast with me, Simon Sapper. In this special edition, it's the first of a two-part look back at our Unions 21 2019 conference, which took place in London recently at the head office of the International Transport Workers Federation. I tell you, if you're looking for a venue for a conference, you could do no better than going to the ITF. It really was splendid. They looked after us very well indeed. In this first part, we're going to be looking at one of the major themes we've been concentrating on over the last few months, which is the future of collective voice. And as you'll know, if you've visited our website or listened to our podcasts, we have a commission uh, that looks after uh, and looks into this most important area for the future of organised labour and the, the future of working people generally in the UK. And we have used at the conference as the opportunity to give some of the commissioners on that body the opportunity to give their views about the pressing issues facing the campaign for maintaining and growing collective voice in the UK labour movement. So we're going to hear from uh, our very own Becky Wright, of course, uh, opening uh, events up by putting a bit of context around what we're going to discuss. Uh, Then Baroness Margaret Prosser and other commissioners from Commission on Collective Voice will share their thinking uh, with us. And that includes Mike Clancy, General Secretary of Prospect, It includes Andrea Gennaro from the OECD, Mel Sims from the University of Glasgow, and Danny Mortimer from the NHS Employers Confederation. We're also going to have comments from other people who participated in what was a really good conference. Betsy Dillner from the Social Change Agency and Denise Linney from the Royal College of Midwives will give their take on syndicate sessions that they ran later in the day. But first, over to Becky. We put a poll in the field last week to ask people what they thought about collective voice, what they thought about joining trade unions, and it was really interesting. And I just wanted to share a few things with you. The first one was that when we asked people how they think their terms and conditions are best negotiated, the vast majority of people said through some collective arrangement. But when we asked them if that wanted to be through a union, people were like, maybe, sounds okay, don't know what that is. Younger people, when asked if they would be interested in joining a trade union, overwhelmingly said yes. This is something we hear time and time again. Young people aren't anti-trade union, they just don't know what a trade union is. But that group were also the least likely to want their terms and conditions negotiated for them on a collective basis. So we have a real struggle and a real uh, challenge ahead of us. How do we make ourselves relevant to that key workforce that we need to engage in order that the trade union movement and that workers can get a better fair share in the 21st century? We have to try to get our thoughts in order and to get each of us who's going to be engaged in this endeavour, whether as members of the Commission or as active trade unionists, we have to come to some understanding of the need for more listening, maybe more encouragement, more recognising that people, as Becky has mentioned really, that people, workers out there, see themselves much more as individuals that need, want and need the collective support of an organisation that knows what it's doing and knows how to help them. 
And so on to Prospect General Secretary Mike Clancy. Now, Mike quickly warmed to his theme of collective voice, collective bargaining, and its role in driving up productivity as well as a host of other good things. A collective bargaining is the transformative platform that civic society needs to rebalance power, something I think everybody in this room can agree upon, and many people in polling uh, and in uh, civic society more generally would agree with we have to reimagine collective bargaining. We have to find the language and a, and a, a means of expression that the young, younger people that Becky referenced in the polling uh, can understand that it's a medium through which, a conduit through which their voice and their interest in their employment conditions can be amplified. Because if you want to solve the productivity puzzle, the answer lies in collective bargaining. If you want to solve the conundrums around fair organizational change, the answer lies in collective bargaining and collective voice. If you want to solve pay stagnation, and perhaps even more importantly, if you really want to deal with equal pay and gender pay, collective bargaining is the answer. And if you want to get capital to share, if you want to have corporations to behave better, collective bargaining is the answer. Now, one of the features, I think, of the last uh, 20 years or so is that exhorting capital to change makes no impact on the attitude of capital. You have to require capital to change. Now, I'm going to say a little bit more, though, in a minute about collective bargaining and the attitude of employers. But fundamentally, we need a substantial shift in public policy in this country. And to achieve that, we need to change the electoral fortunes that may be uh, ahead of us. I think, crucially, we as trade unions need to really think about our language. That polling that we've done is resonant. What unions should be about is getting on, not just getting even. There are circumstances, particularly in what is this, one might call the precariat, in this country, where sort of justice trade unionism is absolutely the response to exploitative employment and engagement practices. But a lot of the people that we represent in this room, a lot of the people we aspire to represent, are actually looking to get on, improve their situation at work. They don't necessarily start from a prism of uh, analysis that their employer is bad. So the union must not speak to just a small constituency of people who think an employer is bad. It must be capable of biting. It must be capable of applying leverage. But it must speak to aspiration as much as it speaks to potential privation. We have to reinvent in people's minds the transformative power of collective bargaining and collective processes in that regard. And just as we need to make capitalism share through collective bargaining, there is absolutely no point in creating ferocious opposition even amongst our friends in the employment community. Collective bargaining is something you do potentially and preferably by consensus. It's not something you do despite employers. We also have a journey to try and recreate in employers' minds the importance of collective bargaining. It's transformative, normative, and procedural uh, value to them. Strong stuff from Mike. 
Uh, next up was Andrea Garnero from the OECD, the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development, to give uh, a more international flavour on what is happening in this area of industrial relations. So uh, I work in the Employment, Labour and Social Affairs Department of the OECD and I work especially on uh, minimum wages and collective bargaining. We have been, uh, let's say, uh, looking again at the collective bargaining issues since a uh, few, um, few years as a, a key, first of all, uh, fundamental right uh, for workers, but also as a tool uh, for uh, addressing some of the challenges that we face today in the in the labor market. So today I'll mainly talk about the latest findings that we published in the Employment Outlook a couple of weeks ago. So it was a, it's our flagship publication on uh, employment uh, issues, and this year was entirely dedicated to the future of work. Collective bargaining gives policymakers, uh, companies and workers the possibility to respond in a more flexible and pragmatic manner. So we, we should think and of maybe in your advocacy work uh, to policymakers, you should, you should maybe remind them that the alternative to collective bargaining is not what we economists think that is individual bargaining. Individual bargaining happens for, uh, I don't know, a 5% of the workforce or so that super high skill that mm-hmm. they can say, no, I'm, I'm not coming. I want a pay rise or whatever. I'm, I'm leaving. This happens for a very tiny margin of uh, the population. So. The alternative to collective bargaining is either no bargaining, what we call monopsony, so the company fixing the wage, either you take this or you leave, uh, or uh, through public regulation. So something goes wild, goes, goes bad, and then the state comes in and gives a regulation that is the same from uh, uh, Scotland to, to Wales and so on and so forth, and that may not fit all companies. So it's in the interest of companies as well to ensure through collective bargaining a flexible that can be at firm level as, as you were saying as well, a flexible uh, way of regulating also new challenges. I think it's an interesting example when we look at the future work, the temporary work agency sector and the culture and creative industries also in the UK show that the system per se is able to adjust to new challenges. So in the culture and creative industries since maybe a century there is collective bargaining for workers that that are not dependent. Uh, they are not uh, dependent employees. So there are inter- interesting examples. Of course, that need to be adapted to other sectors, where, where they show that this is a tool. Collective bargaining is a tool that is flexible enough to respond to different challenges and working environments. So always interesting to get a, a wider perspective that, than is just the length and breadth of of the UK. And I'm sure you'll have noticed, as I did, some echoes in what Andrea was saying, in contrast to what Mike said. Uh, just before him. We do come uh, much closer to home now uh, with our next speaker, who's Danny Mortimer. Uh, you may have heard our podcast with Danny earlier in the year. Danny is the uh, the lead negotiator for the NHS, uh, the NHS Employers Federation, the largest employment organisation uh, in the country, and a, a very keen and active member of the Commission uh, on Collective Voice. Uh, here are the best bits from his contribution. And we join him just as he's setting out the structure and the dynamics of the social partnership that underpins the negotiating machinery that he co-chairs together with uh, representatives of the health service unions. And there are three actors uh, round the table for our social partnership forum. There are the employers, so these 300 organisations that I represent. There are the national organisations, including a government department, um, and there are our trade unions, and we recognise 14 uh, trade union organisations in the in the NHS. And some are very big, and some are very, very small. 
Um, but it has enabled us, for example, to build the trust and confidence to do a pretty substantial pay deal for our non-medical staff, the largest pay deal uh, in the public sector uh, to date. Um, it has allowed us to identify other areas of working together. Um, our response to Brexit as employers, where we've convened and brought together a, a collective voice for our sector as a whole, it would have been inconceivable for us not to do that with our trade union colleagues. And we, we run an approach where actually my co-chair in terms of running that coalition uh, for health and social care is the head of health for, for Unison. And, it, and it's just a, an entirely natural way for us to, to work. We have, as I've said, we have some of our difficulties and our, our tensions. There is something of a, a difficulty, I think, on both sides, uh, both for the employers and for the trade unions in terms of the relationship between the national, the regional and the local. Uh, we struggle with that. My members struggle with that sometimes in terms of what the balance of power is between the actors. And I think, in fairness, my trade union colleagues uh, struggle with that as well in terms of what are very substantial local local employers. We do struggle because of our complexity, the way in which the NHS employs one and a half million people. It's the biggest uh, spender of uh, taxpayers' money now in the United Kingdom. In Wales, it accounts for 50% uh, of all public public revenue that's spent by the Welsh Government. It's slightly less in, in England, but it's not far behind. Leads to a complexity. It does lead sometimes to an ignorance, uh, I think, in terms of some of the national actors, both about the role that trade unions can play, but also about the necessity of them needing to come and engage in the social partnership dialogue that we have. And, and often the, the biggest challenges that we, we face are about the conversations happening too late. Uh, a belief I'm sure this is not unique to the NHS, but a belief that the, the best time to talk to, to trade union colleagues and engage with them is when the ink is largely dry and a very extensively constructive document, rather than understanding it's best to, to come and have a conversation before any words have been committed to, to the page, so that actually there is a genuine dialogue about how things uh, develop. Politics does intrude. You know, there are things that both the Labour government did, particularly in terms of pursuing a, an agenda which actively embraced private sector participation in the delivery of, of healthcare far more enthusiastically than their successive government um, successes have, uh, in truth, uh, which caused tension. There are ways in which the NHS is developing policy at the moment, which caused some suspicion and concern uh, for trade union colleagues. But there are also times when the relationship breaks down. Uh, we've had the unfortunate uh, experience in recent years of a dispute with our junior doctors, which is probably one of the biggest areas of um, you know, public sector industrial um, disputes. So as I said, whilst I do believe um, that we have a really positive uh, relationship, there have absolutely been moments uh, when our trade union colleagues have been um, terrible enemies, uh, as Mike referred to. Uh, and we're still on something of a a road to recovery with our junior doctor colleagues, but have managed to hold together the relationship with our, our trade unions. I do think in, in terms of the things that make the relationship work for us, uh, we have some advantages compared to obviously colleagues working in the private sector. We do have political interest and commitment to the dialogue. And I think there is something interesting about the fact that's been sustained by different political parties and by presently by a political party that doesn't naturally see value in a relationship with trade unions but I do think successive health ministers of various uh, shades of um, Toryness uh, have seen the value of that dialogue with our trade union colleagues and I think that's a tribute to our trade union colleagues and the way in which they've approached that that dialogue. Fundamentally we are we do have a shared agenda I think we recognize that the NHS is made of people and those people are required to play a team sport 
That's the way in which we work. That's the way in which we're, we work best in terms of providing care for our, our patients. So we do return constantly to that, to that, um, to that shared, shared agenda. The final keynote speaker in this opening session of the 2019 Unions 21 Conference is our friend Professor Mel Sims from the University of Glasgow. In her contribution, Mel is concentrating particularly on how collective voice is so important for managed and orderly change and the role that public policy must necessarily play in that. But if we look more broadly across the labour market, it's clear that most workers don't have a say in those those changes um, and they don't have uh, a voice and they certainly don't have a collective voice. I think in that context, it's not surprising that it's in countries like the UK and the US where we see the most anxiety about some of these changes. If you feel that these changes kind of are happening to you, that you don't have very much um, opportunity to influence what they look like and how uh, they shape up, I think it's in those settings that you're almost bound to get the, the degree of anxiety and public concern that we're seeing and experiencing um, in the UK now. Where workers, if we look around the world and we look at other settings where workers have strong collective voice, usually through their unions, they're able to negotiate how these changes are introduced. And that it's that choice, it's that, that uh, decision about how we prioritise the negotiation of the, uh, these changes that's really, I think, the, the, the challenge ahead of, of all of us. There's nothing inevitable about automation leading inevitably to, to job losses uh, if you have the kind of uh, systems that can help you negotiate skills development, if you have systems that can help workers uh, redeploy, create new uh, patterns of tasks within jobs that can help uh, work, you know, redesign jobs to the the skills that are needed. Uh, Or if you can retrain workers into jobs in sectors and industries that are are taking over in the jobs that are being lost. The problem in, in the UK is we have fewer and fewer mechanisms to do that, and particularly outside the public sector. Uh, the state um, is is absolutely central, setting the, the rules of the game, if you like. But it would also require changes to employers. And I think that's one of the areas where we don't think about we don't think about that enough. So when we look at, for example, labour market policies where governments have tried to create some sort of incentive for employers to behave in particular ways, uh, one of the areas I've been looking at is skills policy and apprenticeship policy. One of the problems we see there is that there aren't very many levers that the state has in order to get employers to to behave collectively, to to negotiate what they want. Um, And so you get this mismatch where people are involved employers are involved on an individual level in trailblazer groups of setting apprenticeship standards and those kinds of things. And then you go out and talk to managers in that sector and they feel that this is all happening a very long way away from them, even though the whole policy agenda has been about putting employers at the heart of skills policy development. When I, when I talk to people, and particularly policymakers and, and governments about this, I'm really keen to emphasise the choices. I, I think it, it's, it's very often that, that it, governments, but also trade unions and certainly employers, feel that this, this is sort of happening to them. And I think we need to sort of remember that we, we have choices about how we respond um, and we have choices as actors within this changing uh, setting. And those will set us along different paths. If we continue along the path that we have, which has been to really 
absolutely undermine collective bargaining, that it is almost inevitable that, em that, that employers will, will be able to do what they want. Their, 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 in their, their interests at workplace level, organizational level, will dominate this, these, uh, these changes. They're not going to be able to be held account and, uh, and bargained around the multiple interests in the, in the changing world of work. So all of that requires time and effort and resource, of course it does, and not just from the people in this, this room, from a much wider uh, a group, including policymakers, governments, etc. We can't let employers dominate the agenda. We, we, we need to do something much more proactively. Otherwise, we're going along a path which, which privileges the interests of only one of the, the groups of um, actors um, in the employment relationship. And that's not a future I want. I'm sure it's not a future you want. So the work of the Commission comes at this really important moment where we can really start to work out what it would take to rebuild uh, the, that collective voice, power and influence and how we can sell that case to workers. Obviously, we need, we need them to be parts of the joining trade unions, but arguably more importantly to employers and to policymakers uh, as well. That's a really good broad set of thoughts that completes the contributions from up here. I think the word choices you used lots and lots and lots of times, and I think that's good because... Clearly, all of us in our lives, whether it's at work or wherever, we like the idea that we've got some choice about something. The idea we have no choice is something that diminishes us and diminishes employers if they feel they've got no choice as well. And I do think the whole change which is rolling along towards us, particularly in the sense of uh, artificial intelligence and all that that means... That debate has somehow or other taken place completely separate to a debate of anything that's going on with the Department of Education training about what we need to do in order to make sure our workforce is going to be geared up for that. And so the whole role of the state is hugely important here as well. Our conferences are always designed to be highly interactive and participative. So we moved on to some contributions from the floor and questions and answers. And the first point came from Nick Childs, an organiser at the Royal College of Midwives, all about language. I was interested in uh, what Mike Clancy had to say about language, but I get the point exactly. And, and I think as a, the trade union movement in general, we don't help ourselves a lot with language. A good example is you hear a lot of the term industrial relations. Uh, we know what it means, but when I speak to young people, um, even some midwives, about industrial relations, they look at me like I'm an alien. And you know, a good, a good example is a lot of the academic material that we you know, teach ourselves with, and, you know, this is a good example, John Kelly's Rethinking Industrial Relations. I don't read this on the train, by the way, I'm <laughs> lending it to a colleague. But we, we need to change that language, because I think if we're talking yeah. about bringing young people into the movement, they just don't get it, and it's got a lot of connotations from the past, and it's not portrayed very well in the press and the media. And then in a response to a question about engaging young people and young trade union members, there was a really interesting uh, sort of point-to-point -point kind of divergence of opinion uh, discussion around the issue between Mel Sims and Danny Mortimer. Here's what each of them had to say. Young people, I think, I, I think we really risk talking about young people as a homogenous group yeah. when, when we sort of... The trade union movement does this just as much as managers do this, just as much as 
newspapers do this. I think it's a real problem. There is as much, uh, there is, there is almost always, there is always more inequality within a generation than there is be between generations. So I think we do, we need to think about different kinds of young workers and how they experience work and they are experiencing different things many of them are experiencing different things than when we were you know in that in that age cohort but actually a lot of their experiences are similar as well so we need to not make not other them not not make them this sort of group that we kind of don't understand and somehow can't understand one of the projects that i've i've been working on has looked at examples around the world of organizing young workers and that's been really interesting because what one of the things that comes out consistently is that actually in attitudes towards trade unions they're not that much different than older cohorts so they're they're often fairly in line with whatever the the national setting that um, that they they grew up in what what is different is that they're often working in different sectors so there are particular sectors in all of those countries we and that unions have struggled to organize those sectors so in the uk that's retail hospitality care work those kinds of sectors they're not always the same sectors in across across um, all national settings but when unions can get into those sectors and organize them actually what you see so we focus particularly on examples where there was something innovative or very positive happening so we were looking for examples of success if you like and what was particularly interesting was that both those aspects of that you were talking about of the conflictual trade unionism but also the sort of more um, movement building and um, solidarity building broadly between uh, retailer retail, retail workers across the city for example in America the, 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 both sides were happening and that I think is very telling I think that 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 tells us that, that many young people are responding to those different facets of trade unionism in lots of complex and interesting ways and organizers know that when they go and talk to them I mean that's what, what organizers do isn't it is is understand um, and work with the people that, that they're organizing so I don't I think it's really important that we don't fall into the trap of thinking about young people as a homogenous mass Good. and that we really try and understand the experiences and the um, the sectors and the jobs and the experiences that that they are having in the setting where we as trade unions are trying to engage them. And just to add something there, yes, please. What, you'll know we, we have some serious problems in the NHS in terms of you know, vacancies, mismatch between our demand for staff and our supply of staff. And the work that we've done in terms of the quality of our workplaces actually shows age is not a determining factor in terms of what people want. I think we all have to accept employers, and I would say trade unions, that we have to accept that actually people's attitudes towards work, their need for flexibility and control and predictability has changed profoundly from when I entered the workplace. And whether you're in your 50s and you've got caring responsibilities for, a, for an elder, or you're in your 20s and you just want some greater control over your life, actually you want similar, if not the same things. And, and I think sometimes we, we exaggerate the difference. We other the young, well, they want flexibility, they want, they want stuff that that we never wanted. And we probably never wanted it when we were their age, but we want it now. And, and, and I think as employers, and I know in the NHS, we, we're having to adapt quite profoundly to that. And I think in fairness to our trade unions, they are also doing that. And, and age matters a lot less to us in terms of the conversation we have about our, our workforce. Um, and it's one of the things that I, I get really quite... I'm, I'm not sure even in terms of the evidence, you know, this whole Generation X, it's nonsense. That, you know, the, the, the research evidence doesn't actually back up a lot of it in terms of those attitudes. It's just a, 
every generation labels the next generation as being different and probably other and not quite as tough and resilient as, as we were and we're not as tough and resilient as our parents were. It's, it, in truth, in terms of what people want from work, we want very similar things. So when it comes to youth engagement in trade unions, which view of the world do you prefer? Do you prefer Danny's view or Mel's view? What's your view? Do email us and let us know if you'd like to join this discussion. We would love to hear your views. Info at unions21.org.uk. We're just a click of a button away. The conference uh, broke up from a plenary session into smaller syndicate groups to consider various aspects in more detail. Uh, here's Betsy Dillner from the Social Change Agency talking about the session that she hosted. The Social Change Agency is a movement building agency. So uh, we do a whole lot of things. We do consultancy, we do training, we do program delivery, we do events, we run our own networks. Really, when we say movement building, that can be a little bit a little bit meaning different things to different people but for us it's really about if you want a whole load of people to be moving towards making a good big social impact we can kind of help you try to figure out how to do that wow i mean that <laughs> i mean that i mean but that that kind of um i hesitate to call it facilitation but but actually finding a way to get all the bits to hang together and to move forward that yeah. is, that's really important yeah. and difficult <laughs> yes it is very difficult i mean if you look on our website there's a lot of very nice concentric circles and pretty diagrams and things that try to make social change which we know is a really messy and really complicated and infuriating and exciting and fun the experience but we're trying to simplify it and and make the most and enable that all the people that you're trying to mobilize that you're trying to build a movement with are are contributing to that movement in the best way possible and I, I, yeah I, immediately the thought occurs to me well actually uh, that's what trade, trade unions have done all that but but actually i think any trade union activist who's listening to this will recognize that actually it's the exception rather than the rule when all the different bits of the union pulled together in the same direction yeah. or even the labor movement right because i think that's <laughs> you know <laughs> think about the institutions we work a lot with organizations that you know the world the i mean if you just look around extinction rebellion you know all these people who are who are coming together taking sort of a networked approach they don't have a board of directors they don't have uh, they don't have a, you know, a membership card. They don't have AGMs, but they're going out and they're mobilizing people. So what is it that, that the institutions that we have such a long tradition and have given us the winds of the labor movement, how can we learn from the way in which networked change is happening and, and innovate inside those institutions to, to mimic the way that people are mobilizing? Wow. And then presumably that's, that's why you're here and that's what that's you're going to talk to us yeah, about this exactly. afternoon. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very much for, for having me. You're welcome. Very excited <laughs> to be here. No, that's, that, 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 that's great. And in a section particularly orientated around the interests and concerns of our health service affiliates and stakeholders, Denise Linney from the Royal College of Midwives spoke about how her organisation moved from servicing to organising. And Denise, your session at this Unions 21 conference was on what? It was about our, it was a case study, and it was about how we've moved as an organisation from being one that did things for our members to a more organising culture, uh, where they're doing things for themselves. I see, and uh, that's quite a journey for any organisation. 
Yes, it is. And it wasn't without its challenges and uh, it wasn't without resistance. But actually, um, we have proved the worth of organising uh, because we've increased our membership by over 11,000 in 10 years. Wow. I mean, that, that, I mean, as you say, that QED, that, that, that proves, the va- proves the value. Uh, what, were, what was the, the, the nature of the conversation like in your, your group? Was, was there a lot of empathy for the challenges you'd faced and overcome? Lots of good ideas about how um, to meet these challenges? I, I addressed the challenges at the beginning of the presentation, so I'm not sure whether and I, I, there was a few nods. So I think you know it was health unions that were in that session. So I think they could they could um, they, they were sympathetic to the challenge, particularly around being a trade union and a professional organisation. Uh, and I did say right at the beginning that to trade you for traditional trade unions, organising is in their DNA. But a trade union and a professional organisation often isn't, and it can, you know, organising can be a bit of a tension within those organisations. And so, what I was, what we kicked off the whole organising journey was bidding for the Union Learning Fund. Oh yeah, yes indeed. Uh, and that wasn't straightforward. The professional side of the organisation were quite resistant to that. To even making a bid? Yes, because learning and education is about the professional side. It's about midwifery educators, practice development midwives. For the trade union to be involved in learning was quite alien. So it it wasn't an easy... It wasn't an easy decision to get uh, take forward, but they, we got there, and we did make that bid. And actually, within a couple of years, it was starting to transform the organisation. So if people are listening to this and thinking, I recognise that situation, that's the situation I'm in or I'm, my union's in, What are there any kind of golden rules or, or golden pearls of wisdom, as it were, that, that you can distill out of your well, experience? Well, for, for, for me... It was having the tenacity to continue. You know, if something doesn't get doesn't land well initially, that doesn't mean to say it's not going to land well in the future. So when uh, we first suggested having union learning reps in the RCM, it was like a tumbleweed moment. Right. But we carried on, you know, making those arguments. Those arguments, you know, started getting taken on board and now you know we've got a network of learning reps and they are seen as extremely valuable to the organization and so I think it's something about never giving up really if you believe in something you know it might not land right correctly the first time or well the first time but you just keep going I mean the same also was about having support workers in the RCM you know again there was a time when we wouldn't even have suggested that. Now they are part of the RCM and they seem a very valuable part of the RCM. So some things just take a bit of time. Denise Lene there from the Royal College of Midwives rounding up contributions from the first session of the Union's 21-2019 conference. But how is it from the point of view of a first-time delegate attending one of our events? Well, uh, I could do no better than seek uh, a brief word with Judy Shaw, who's the president of the National Association of Head Teachers. I'm fascinated by the role of trade unions um, today. I think we've never needed our trade unions more with the changing face of the workplace and things like that. But the interesting things this morning are about how we get that message across to not just young people but all workers out there, how important our collective voice and our influence can be. Well, listeners, that's it for this kind of match of the day 
style roundup of the Unions 21 2019 conference. The first of two linked podcasts. The second in this set will be available in a couple of weeks and we'll concentrate on the future of work and how we manage to master digital technology and harness it for the good of our members. You can find all the information about the speakers you've heard in this podcast on the Unions 21 website in the blog post that accompanies this episode. If you'd like to join the debate, we'd love to hear your views. Please email us at info at unions21.org.uk. You can tweet us at Unions 21. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please rate us and share us from the podcast platform of your choice. It really does make a difference. It just leaves me to thank all those who made the Unions 21 conference so enjoyable and such a success. Uh, Unions 21 Chair Sue Ferns, Vice Chair John Skews, Becky, our Executive Director, of course, Vic Barlow, Duncan Robertson, Henry Skews, and above all, everyone who took the time and trouble to come along, either to speak, to listen, to participate, to exhibit. Until the next Unions 21 podcast, this is me, Simon Sapp, saying thanks for listening and goodbye. been listening to the Unions 21 podcast. Our music is Albatross version 2 by the Computer Music All-Stars used on a Creative Commons license. It is a Makes You Think production.